0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Elixir Mix. We are joined by, as ever, our fabulous panel of hosts. We have Alex Koopman. Howdy, howdy. Hey, Alex. We've got Bruce Tate. Hi,
1: everybody.
0: Hello, Bruce. We've got Steven Nunez. Hello. I am Sophie De Benedetto, and we are joined today by Randall Thomas, who has many potential introductions that I may choose from, so I'm going to go with my favorite two, which is the first one's a little more informative. CTO at a tech incubator called Geometer, as well as a super Hacker and Bond Vivant. And I'm sure we'll be excited to dig into any of those topics. Welcome, Randall.
2: Oh, Thank you so much for having
0: me. Yeah, we're so thrilled you could be here.
3: Roxio calls themselves Career Rocket Fuel for curious coders. They are some of the most experienced Elixir trainers in the business with over five years of Elixir teaching experience. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but don't let that stop you from continuing to learn. Groxio offers remote Elixir and OTP live training courses with no more than six participants. These short two-and-a-half-day sessions give you plenty of keyboard time with your coach, Bruce Tate, co-author of The Programming Phoenix and Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. Groxio also has three extensive Elixir self-study courses available. Whether you want to learn Elixir, OTP, or Phoenix Live View, the self-guided trainings give you the videos, projects, and books you need to make your own breakthroughs. Groxio wants to be your Elixir on-ramp. Subscribe or buy a course today at grox.io.
0: We've got so many great things to dig into today, but one of the things that we often ask guests when they first come on is tell us a little bit about how you got into the Elixir community in the first place.
2: Strangely enough, the short version is I've been around the Ruby community for a long time. And one day I looked around and all the people that I knew from the old Ruby community weren't there anymore. And I figured out where they went. And it turns out that they all showed up in Elixir. In fact, it was kind of accidental. I went to, I think... The first Elixir Conf I had gone to, I think, was in 2018 or 2017. And I showed up there and I literally just walked around. I'm like, wait, so that's why you weren't at Ruby Conf? Oh, wait, so you're here. What are you doing here? So I, I thought I would know no one. And it turned out that I knew everybody. So all the smart people that I sort of coattailed on in Ruby ended up in Elixir. So I figured they're way smarter than me. I should go follow them, see what they're doing. So it's kind of it.
0: That's really as good a reason as any and kind of similar to how I started learning Elixir. It's like, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago, one day, maybe five, five thirty, and Steven says, Hey, you want to see something cool? And that was kind of like the entree into the wide world of Elixir. So following so, the smart people is the way to go.
2: There's a funny thing. I I'm pretty sure this is actually true, right? But like all apocryphal stories, because it happened in, in Barcelona, there was Baruco, Barcelona RubyConf. And at the time we were given this talk on Ruby motion. If you remember, there was this big kerfuffle about, hey, man, you're going to be able to write iOS apps in Ruby. And it was actually a really, really great idea. I kind of think a little ahead of its time. And I think actually at that conference, somebody was talking about, oh, yeah, have you heard that somebody's trying to build a Ruby for Elixir or for Erlang? And I'm just like, yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) I literally thought it was like, because I was thinking about, like, I tried learning Erlang once when the Prague Prague released that first book from Joe, on Erlang, and I remember getting into it, and I remember thinking, I'm like, okay, I'll put this somewhere right above Pearl. I recant that statement now, but at the time I was thinking to myself, like, there's no way you're ever gonna get Rubyists to learn the syntax because, you know, the obsession with beauty and elegance and expressiveness and everything else.
1: Yeah, and it's really funny that Jose kind of put it onto the Ruby syntax, not as this great statement of, let's bring all the Ruby community over, right? It's more like, okay, one less thing, right? know what you have and then, then he kind of layers on these these beautiful abstractions but yeah it seems like we were kind of circling to each other for a long time randall before um for the elixir community that you know the idea that um that you were yard and you know i was deploying some stuff there and you were you know, kind of kind of involved from from the very beginning and kind of we were we were just just outside of each other's orbit and didn't really meet until the groxio course
2: yeah, which is, that's actually what I, I like to say is, you know, I, I do owe a lot to to Bruce for, for really getting involved in the electric community. I, I don't actually, did you just advertise that course online? Was that what it was?
1: Yeah, I mean, we literally just threw a, um, a couple of tweets up just to see if there was a, a test market, to, to test the market. And we said we would need four people to start the class and then, you know, two signed up. But one of them was you, right? And the other one was Patrick Thompson, who's already writing, you know, Articles and and pull requests for for Phoenix for Phoenix Live View, but that was kind of a cool moment because we had to decide whether to do the class or not. And you know, at that point, we decided to go against the grain of traditional courses to to kind of you know like a smaller ninja school, right? Um, yeah. Where everybody could. And then that's that's where we kind of decided to flip the keyboard, and you know, the rest is history.
2: Yeah, I was a pretty mediocre programmer before I got to spend a week in pairing with Bruce. At least for Elixir. Which is, I think that's something that we take for granted. You know, if you come from procedural languages, it's really easy. If you know C, you can kind of learn C, even though it might not be the right idioms, but it's the bridges. If you know Java, you can kind of get into Go. And like, but learning how to actually think in Elixir and break down the problem differently or think functionally is actually one of the big barriers to entry, I think people have. And seeing it and doing it with other people and going through that evolution was really helped me. It actually really leveled up my Elixir.
1: Yeah. So, so. so I, I don't I don't take any credit at all for anything you're doing in, in Elixir, uh, by the way. But I do think that there's a moment where your evolution is like a lot of a lot of other people's, like mine as well, right? It's why are the cool kids leaving the room? What do they see? And how do I how do I make the minimum that that mental shift to to do the things that that good programmers do? And you know that's what we were all um, able to go through together in that class, you and Patrick and I.
2: Yeah, well, I still I still think it's one of the greatest things ever I recommended it. In fact, actually, if you remember, one of the first things I did at CTO was uh, I got a subscription. I think I made you write a feature so I could get my team on Graxio. So shameless plug for Bruce's like learning platform, Graxio. It's great to learn Elixir in a browser. And I've actually used it for other people when they're like, well, what do you think about Elixir? I'm like, I don't know, go go try it out in a browser. Like most people are just blown away that it'll run in a browser anyway. So.
1: It really doesn't run in a browser.
2: <laughs> I, it doesn't, but like those types of abstractions, it's not important. It's like it's like everybody else, you know. First one's free, hey man. First one's
1: free. Yeah, but so in, as your elixir journey journey is kind of started off, you didn't kind of peck around the edges like most people did, right? It's you know you went from kind of zero to sixty, right? So you went from okay, now I'm in the community taking class to now I've got this incubator. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at GeoMeter?
2: Yeah, so some people I used to work with, they started a tech incubator, like all good things, and then COVID hit. The most interesting part of actually what we were doing was we ended up pivoting towards doing COVID response work. And a lot of the work we ended up deploying for several states was actually built on Elixir and Erlang. So we actually have uh, data transformation platforms and pipelines, in fact, we use Broadway for one of them, to, that are currently supporting contact tracing in two states on the East Coast. So we learned a lot about both the scalability and functionality. So just to give you an idea, they were caught in batch world. Their best turnaround time started off at 24 hours. And then when they were really trying to get up to speed, they could do it maybe in six, but there were a lot of errors and bugs. We were actually able to, in a week, spike and prototype something. And then in about another week, actually get into deployment a solution that using Broadway and the inherent sort of scalability of OTP that turned the, literally we were able to process the data faster than they could get it to us. So we went from processing and turning around all the COVID cases in about every couple hours to one minute and 30 seconds was our first test. And we got it down to sub one minute and they were doing it incrementally. We were actually able to reprocess every single test, every single run, every single time, which allowed us to do a different type of quality control which really matters for deduplication because a lot of the the issues that you run into with COVID testing are that the lag between when people get tests and the test results are reported mean that duplicates and false positives are a real problem. So so that was all done on Elixir and Erlang, right? And that was one of those things. By the way, we also wrote a telephony shim that actually did telephony control that did call control for connecting calls to contact tracers, also done in Erlang. And both of them, If I remember correctly, I might be making this up a little bit, but both of them required so few resources that they ran in like a container inside of like an EC2 medium, right? It was just so ridiculously efficient that it was kind of, kind of sad. And we replaced a bunch of custom-made of this Lambda functions that were doing this that had to do with or somewhat error-prone. I think the the Lambda function loads were a couple hours, like 14 or 15 hours to reload the entire universe of data just because of some architectural decision. But the short version is Elixir was a big win because three people were able to rebuild that system in like a week. So a long week, mind you, but it was really kind of impressive. That was one of those really aha moments when you can think about elixir and erlang and beam are very different and they provide almost like what people or devs think of as superpowers
4: so i feel like i've lived the same exact story of lambdas uh being painful and terribly slow and then replacing it with an elixir app and then it was you know like a whole different world entirely yeah
2: um, it's actually do you ever see that t-shirt that says go away i'll replace you with a small shell script like no, it's, you know <laughs> there was like this comic i think it was floating around for a while but it's i've almost feel like the exact same thing it's like Almost any use case where you're using a Lambda function, you can use Elixir and it just kind of works.
4: Okay. It's kind of funny. I mean, a, a Lambda is effectively like one gen server and we can spawn like you know, thousands of thousands of them, no problem. So,
5: so I hear you guys saying this. And I'm, I, the question I have
4: is why
5: isn't everyone doing this? Why is Elixir not like the language that everyone builds all the things
2: in? I mean, it seems to have, yeah, obviously it's the right tool for every job. There. That's a great question. It has nothing to do with technology. I'd love to hear what you guys think, and then I'll, I'll opine with my own slightly derisive, sarcastic view on this.
1: And in the darkness, bind them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> one language nice. to rule them all. Right. Ugh. So it's it's interesting. I I'm starting to play with with a lot of different languages that that have different takes on the world, and so the one that really opened my eyes was Pony, um, because it does. So there are a lot of things that Elixir does really well that that Pony just really really sucks at, right? But one of the things that Pony does well is it enforces compiler constraints that enforce concurrency constraints, right? So co- incorrect programs won't compile, and so you know that that pointed me to to the to the idea that if you have to move a lot of data around, you know if you have a lot of mutability. Then, then Elixir isn't it. And so I've been spending a little bit of time in Julia this year just kind of to, to flux the old math muscles, right? You know, so I was a math major in college or computer science and math. And so one of the things that, that we were focused on was linear algebra. I'm sorry, like matrix, matrix algebra. And that's kind of what machine learning and machine modeling have have turned into right it's it's you have these these massive systems of equations and and algorithms to to kind of slowly crank and and provide more and more precision and we're starting to, to get into the places where where you could take these these massive tables and apply these differential equations to them and elixir is just not good at that and is never going to be good at that it's good at kind of the control but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that there are a lot of good things that Elixir is great at. It's funny, Randall. It's Elixir is great at almost all the things that we were doing <laughs> when we were at these early Ruby communities, right? The deployment, the um, yeah. you know, the the babysit a big fat relational database with a web UI, you know, on and on and on.
2: Yeah. No. So I don't know. What do you guys? Why do you guys think it's not winning? I mean, I guess the other question is, what's the definition of winning? I don't think universal adoption of everything is is the definition of winning. I don't think it's for everyone. Not all languages are for everyone.
1: I have a question, how, how do we know it's not winning, right? Um, the language popularity indexes, they make mistakes, right?
2: Oh, yeah, didn't they? Uh, Actually, what was it? There was something that they included, like, GEMs. Crystals. Crystal, that's what it was, right? And they ended Crystal, up including right? like age UH Crystals. Programming
1: Crystals, which is either a programming model or a great way to have your new age crystals learn as, as you get uh, more enlightened every day. I'll have to look into that.
2: So no. So I think there are lots of things. It's really funny. So one of the things I learned from being a Rubyist early on, and at the time I got into Ruby, I was actually an independent consultant and I was all in.net. Like I I had actually started a long time ago, system five release three. That's how old I am. But (laughs) I had gotten into that net because that's where all the consulting money was. So that was C++, Microsoft Foundation classes, all that crap. And the learning aha moment for me is I had to take some visual basic programmers and try and teach them C-sharp and they failed miserably. Like there was no way to teach them the basics of classes and they just hadn't learned any of that stuff. And we had to deliver an ETL system. And Blake Miserini at the time, he's like, hey, man, I know you like Perl, but I've got something way better than Perl. And I apologize for all the Perl I ever wrote. I think we all need to do that. but." he said, I got something way better than Pearl. It's this Ruby thing. I'm like, whatever. So I played around with it for a week and I'm like, "Huh, this is pretty neat. And I'm pretty sure at the time I actually had to go to like a a bookstore and find the Ruby book, like an actual print version of the book. This was, (laughs) you know, so like you had to like run around to borders and whatever, and try and find a copy of Dave Thomas's book. And I did it over the weekend and then I tried it with these guys on one day. And then in the week I had them doing advanced string processing and classes, they just got it and grokked it. And that was the moment I knew that like, Oh yeah, that's where we need to go. And so I literally just stopped doing.net stuff and started doing all in on Ruby and Erlang and Elixir. And I actually when I say that Erlang Elixir beam, I actually really like to separate those things because I think it's important that you don't, mix them or blend them like they they are they are different things and that you're getting a lot there i think it has that same feeling as early adoption for ruby like literally when we started doing ruby work we had this other uh, company called quality humans where we were all all doing rails apps and everybody thought that we were crazy they're like i don't know this rails thing i don't know it seems pretty risky like only these guys in chicago are doing it
1: yeah i mean i think that very often we as a programming community have to take a step back to take a step forward Right, and I think that that's one of the things that Ruby be provided. Right, so it was a huge step forward in a lot of ways. Right, first in the idea that a programming language should be intuitive and fun. Second, in that that you didn't have to specify. You know, it wasn't kind of this, this really tedious artificial typing model. And third, we didn't have these really tedious and artificial configurations that were you know xml that was explicit for everything with no defaults all those things were really important for ruby and it seems like by taking that step back to reset the kind of the the bar on for application developers on the productivity of application developers you know we we got a lot of the you know the deployments you know mutability a lot of a lot of things wrong but there was a whole lot that was right about ruby that elixir learned from yeah it's good stuff i
0: was gonna say i like that you mentioned productivity bruce because that's something that i absolutely feel is true of elixir and phoenix and then kind of back to what you were saying randall when you were trying to you know move some folks into kind of this realm of like object oriented and when you found ruby and kind of brought that to them that people were able to grok it and learn it and be productive in it relatively quickly i think that's absolutely true of elixir it's absolutely true of phoenix and not just because of you know, Elixir's language features and the fact that similarly to Ruby, you know, it is eloquent and easy to reason about. But I think there's so many sort of Elixir ecosystem features that allow developers and whole teams to be really highly productive. And I think that's why I'm not at all surprised to hear how Elixir and Erlang has allowed you guys to solve these really big scale problems for like COVID contact tracing. It reminds me a bit of a talk that was one of the keynotes at ElixirConf EU this year, which will hopefully be out soon about some folks in Kenya who are using Elixir to develop a new like 911 emergency contact system around the wow. country. And it's just, it's kind of the perfect combination of like scale and concurrency and fault tolerance, but also productivity for actual humans. And so I'd definitely be curious to hear, you know, from you, Randall, with your experiences lately with some of these COVID projects. Like Sounds like you guys spun this up really fast. Like a week later, you have these working prototypes. So like, what is it about Elixir specifically or this ecosystem specifically that let you guys do that so quickly?
2: So I'm going to give you the first one in no particular order, but the first one that pops to mind is people. So it's a really bizarre thing that I found is that people who are looking for those exact things that you mentioned, like people for whom tools matter, like productivity matters. Like this is not to poo-poo or denigrate people who don't choose that but there are some people who are like approach things as it's kind of like a craftsman and some people approach it as just like this is my job but there are literally people who go out and try and learn more because they want better tools they want a better experience like all of those things holistically matter to them and i find people who gravitate to the elixir ecosystem generally speaking care about those things and as a result it ironically it makes them much better problem solvers like they literally care about the solution and the elegance of the solution um, I think Buckminster Fuller had that statement. I might be misattributing the quote, but it's like, first I start with a solution, but if at the end it is elegant, I know that I haven't solved it in the best way. It's kind of, that's kind of the gist of it. So we actually, because we had people who had experience in Elixir, they were really good at solving problems. Then the other thing that really works out is that Beam, Erlang, and Elixir provide great abstractions. Like, I really love the fact that you get to pick the right level of abstraction for your problem. And if you need to go more granular, you can. If you don't have to go more granular, no need. Like, I wrote C++ for a long time, probably professionally for the better part of almost eight or nine years. And one of the problems I always, I didn't realize at the time, because like I started off in assembler and then everything looked better than assembler, was that C++ forces you to solve every abstraction from the ground up. Like almost invariably you're just starting it's like oh yeah so let's talk about how you're going to lay out the memory for your class write another class guess what now you're going to do the exact same thing let's talk about the copy semantics for your class let's talk about like all of these things which really have nothing to do with solving the problem are the majority of the lift that you actually have to do and the funny thing is we didn't really think about parallelization We didn't think about memory usage. We didn't think about CPU utilization. We just really thought about, well, we have to do the same thing over and over and over again. Well, how do we solve it in the small? We do this. Oh, well, what do we need to do to parallelize it? What's this Broadway thing? Okay. Hey, look, this gives us some like composable data pipelines. Well, that works really well. Great. Okay. I guess it all works. How fast is it? I don't know. Let's look at it. Oh, crap. Did Did it break? Oh, no, it finished. Weird. Okay. I guess we solved the problem. But it felt like a happy accident. And that's one of the things I really love about Elixir. like perfect example, the first time you run live view, it feels like a happy accident. You're like,
0: totally. You're like, oh, okay, I guess that's it. It just worked. And I feel like I've had that experience so much, not just with live view, but definitely very notably with live view. But so often you're like, huh, okay, I have to do this thing. I wonder if I just tried, you know, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And then, you know, you're kind of off to the races.
2: Yeah. Oh, also speaking of productivity, I actually really like the fact that specifically when you start talking about abstractions, I like the fact that one of the principal ideas behind both elixir erlang phoenix and all the libraries is that we don't hide them we just express them if that makes sense like there's no super uber magic the magic is there for you to understand and see and it basically you can deal with it and you can use it or you cannot but it's not trying to make something um, really magical happen like i know it's fun to pick on javascript but like promises in javascript seem like a really good idea but i think we've all written some javascript where the chain of promises goes down and on and on and on
0: I have no idea what you're talking about. doesn't sound like yeah. me at all. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious how you feel that compares to, you know, people throw the phrase like Rails magic around a lot. And that's something that I know like Stephen and I encountered in teaching Rails is when you take students from the way that we had taught the course back at Flatiron usually went from, you know, you're building like a web app with React, then you're using Sinatra, then you're using Rails. And like the class would always split almost 50-50, like half the people would be so thrilled to get to Rails. Stuff would just click for them. They would be so productive. And then the other half of people would be frankly kind of pissed because they wanted to know what the heck was going on under the hood and yeah. weren't comfortable or happy with all of these attractions.
2: So, you know, the funny thing about that is one of the best, the, I think what saved me from that specific thing was one, the, I was lucky enough to take the advanced Ruby class that they taught where I think it was, it was the Prague studio. I think Dave might've actually taught it. And he specifically talked about eigenclasses and unpacking. So, and I think the first version of Rails I used was 0.9 or 0.8. It was it was not long after it was brand new. So you had to understand how it worked because the stuff broke all the time, right? Like it had some really weird behaviors. And I we actually used to have a, this, what we would say is we want Ruby programmers, not Rails programmers. And the difference was whether or not you understood the abstractions. And I think that's actually a different approach that people take to learning things. And to me, that's the difference between maybe being a craftsman, just being a utilitarian. like you need to understand those abstractions. And in fact, I think somebody was mentioning something about like, what would you say about learning Elixir? What I wish I had done differently, I think was one of the, the, the things we were talking about. One of the things I always tell people is learn Elixir, not Phoenix, right? Because a lot of people get into Ruby through Rails. And so what they learn is Rails, and that's as deep as they go. And the problem then becomes, if you ever give them a Ruby-esque or Ruby-centric problem, they always see it through a, a Rails lens, right? Same thing with Elixir. I think it's actually way, it's far better to learn Elixir first, then learn Phoenix, then learn Phoenix, and then try and figure out what's going on. Because if you learn Elixir, you see Phoenix and you're like, well, that makes perfect sense. Right? Pipes, got it. Composable, got it. it makes, there's, nothing, there's nothing magical here. The abstractions are all just layered into this particular problem. It's great. But if you only see Phoenix, like I've done this with people, they want to build a web app, they go for Phoenix, they get everything working. They're like, I have no idea what's going on here like why do you keep returning this okay thing like
0: or i think what you'll do then too is you'll draw a lot of false equivalencies between phoenix and rails and i think that oh, that's something that i yeah. did a lot and you know a lot of the el- elixir that i wrote probably for like you know whatever the first year of my life as an elixir developer oh. was just a mess because i was just trying to write ruby and elixir okay. um, i think that's probably not uncommon
2: I, I really agree with you on that one. Like, I remember I said the same thing because when I moved to C++ from C, I always said that C programmers make the worst C++ programmers because you're writing C and C++. And it, the strange thing is Elixir has both the blessing and the curse of looking like Ruby. I have seen it. Like, I see people who are literally, they're great Rubyists. They get into to Elixir and like, you look at the code and you're like, you know that at variable doesn't do what you think it does. Like, that is not what you think it is. Right. And, but you can see them using it. Like it's a Ruby, like, you know, a class level variable and they're like, well, it's just a class level variable. Right. And you're like, Nope,
3: no, no, no. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12 week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code.
1: Yeah, it's really funny. I I agree with both of you so much. And and what's funny is, Sophie, that that when I want to learn to to code things like an Elixir developer would, I look for your articles. But (laughs) but anyway, neither here nor
0: there. Um, uh Uh-uh.
1: So Randall, one of the things that's that's cool about the pivot that we made when you and Patrick took that first class of ours was that our OTP and Phoenix courses have become elusor courses with a little OTP and Phoenix mixed in. Mm -hmm. Right. It's that you know we 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 teach this model of of you know constructor, reducer, transformer that I think that we started to talk about. In your class but since essence has become stronger and we also teach this concept of pipeline and with land and how to get between them but we also try to teach the concepts of how do you learn where do you find things like how do you find the callbacks for behavior what is a oh, behavior yeah. all those kinds of things really really matter when when you're you're taking the next step, she didn't even think about that. That's the other thing that's really great about Elixir is the documentation is amazing. Yeah, right. And that the documentation actually bleeds through all the way from the documents on Hex to the documents on um, the individual page for the project to on, on GitHub to the documentation in IEX, and all you have to do is a using to bring it all in and make it all available.
2: Yeah. In fact, actually, I think in one of your other podcasts, you guys mentioned something like the, you were talking about Don't Fear Erlang. Whose podcast was that?
0: We've definitely had that conversation here. Yeah, but basically was
2: Todd, yeah, yeah. yeah. So by the way, I totally met him for the first time at uh, Lone Star.
0: Yeah, Todd's great.
2: Yeah, actually, we we totally, we got a chance (laughs) to hang out. I had no idea. It's like, I'm like, we just met, we just started talking mostly about food, actually.
0: He
1: has the biggest surfer vibe of anybody I've ever met, you know? Yeah.
2: (laughs) No, he's a great guy. But I actually I heard his his podcast on your podcast, his talk on your podcast. And it was really funny because I think we had some of the same stuff like Sasa Jurek's talk on the soul of the Elixir ecosystem. I actually just sent that to somebody. Yeah. People were like, well, why would you care? Like, why should I care about this? I'm like, go, go watch this. If it resonates, come. If it doesn't, well, by all means, keep keep doing what you're doing.
4: Yeah, that's definitely the best introductory video. If anybody wants to know what the beam is and, and the value proposition, send them that video. And if they're not convinced in, the, in in an hour of listening to Sasha, then it's it's not for them. Yeah. Well, you
2: know what? One of the other funny things is, uh, so I had this conversation with somebody else the other day because we were talking about JavaScript's easy to pick on. Listen, like all tools have their both pluses and minuses. But what I was saying is the, the argument is like, hey, listen, JavaScript's got ubiquity, all these other things. And I said, listen, you don't write JavaScript. And he's like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, Okay. I'm gonna go in, I'm gonna take your Babel config and I'm just gonna start deleting some stuff. Tell me whether or not this is gonna work, right? And I think one of the things that nobody realizes is that none of us actually write the languages we think we write, we're writing. Like Elixir Work runs on the Beam, right? It uses Erlang libraries. It uses a whole bunch of other things. Java, Clojure, they run on JVM. Well, which JVM, the hotspot? Like the abstractions between us and the hardware and what we're really doing and the libraries we're all calling it's actually one of the things which which drives me nuts is that nobody really tries to understand how many abstractions they're getting in between them and their solution. Same thing with JavaScript. You don't actually write JavaScript. You write ES6 or you write ES6 with reducers or you write, I don't know. I'm a terrible JavaScript programmer, but I've tried I've struggled for hours with my Babel JS configs and all the other stuff to try and get something to compile right because I had the wrong type of arrow function selected. Right. And it's one of the things I really like about the entire Erlang. Elixir and Beam ecosystem is that it makes very transparent at what level you're operating, whereas almost everybody else, they tries to obfuscate it. We oh, even see, nobody uses C anymore. You use Clang or LLVM, right? Like, like, your C code really doesn't actually, in most instances, compile straight down anymore. Not in the way you think it does.
4: Yeah, I've definitely seen that issue of JavaScript. Uh, I was helping somebody uh, during a consultancy, and they were using Async 08 in some AWS Lambda, Mm-hmm. And it's somewhere deep in the AWS docs, So it's like you can't use async await. It may work, but you know, the uh, the lambda may terminate because the event loop doesn't know that it's still busy or something like that. So you have to, so then we went through and switched everything over to promises and then all of a sudden the thing just worked. So yeah, yeah. JavaScript does not equal equal JavaScript half the time.
1: Yeah. I've got Joe Armstrong's voice in my head saying, run to completion semantics, that's madness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: right. Like Well, so you know, it's it's the other thing that's really interesting, um, just language-wise. My big kick these days is is Haskell, and I bring blame. Actually, I bring Bruce because he introduced me to Brooklyn Zelenka, and I now know that she's actually order of magnitude smarter than I'll ever be. And so, if she's doing Haskell, then it's it's upon me to incumbent upon me to learn half of what she knows about Haskell. And the Haskell people are right. Being a terrible Haskell programmer has made me a much better everything else programmer, right? So and. What's interesting to me is that you want to talk about some people who embrace mutability in terms of what your language is going to do, like your prelude. Like the idea, it's like, no, 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 sorry. Let's start. It's not a precompiler. You tell me what this language should be doing right now. Go ahead. Like, it's it's kind of crazy how flexible Haskell is.
1: Yeah, I I have another thing in common with you, Randall, that I am a terrible Haskell programmer.
2: Yeah, I, I highly recommend everybody should struggle with some Haskell, though. Because you want to talk about some magic and some just understanding of what raw computation looks like. like yeah, and, and I
1: mean, it's, it's the foundation for for everything that's in, important to the Elixir community, right? So even some of the things that we're doing with types, some of the things that we're doing that we've always done with with streams, they're all kind of based on the iterative models. Some of the things that we want to get into with property-based testing. Some of the things that we do with, for example, the formatter. You know, Jose did this this talk, I think three or four years ago called John Hughes Driven Development, which was cool because at that time we had John Hughes at at Gig City Elixir. And, you know, it was just a, a whole lot of fun talking to him about how his inventions in a language that he he'd never coded before at the time are making such a such a hard impact on it. I mean, he was just beaming the whole time.
4: So while this is an Elixir podcast, what Haskell learning resources would you recommend?
2: So I like the Haskell book, like Haskell from First Principles, I think it's called. It's the purple book, whatever that's out there. That's a really good one. There's another thing. Gosh, what was it called? Things I wish I had known when I was learning Haskell. I can't remember who wrote it. I've got it. I'm sure I have a link to it somewhere because I have a running list of, of an org file of just Haskell resources. But what it talks about is it you mean, Haskell is kind of like what Elixir could have been had there not been a good community. And it's not a ding against the Haskell community. It's just that the Haskell community, like depending on how you get into it, it might kick you immediately out of it. Like there are plenty of posts where it's like, oh, well, let's start with some category theory, right? Which is, which is kind of like, imagine if, I, if you came into Erlang or you came into the Elixir ecosystem and somebody said, oh yeah, that's really great. So let's talk about applicative functors and basic functional, like, do you, know, do you know what a calculus is? Do you know what a lambda calculus is? No? Okay, we're going to start with some proofs, right? That's probably not why they came there. It might be what they need to know, but that's not necessarily what you want to hit them over the head with initially. But that one broke down like all this sort of history that you need to know to sort of get through, like, why is there stack? Why is there a cabal? Like, what's the split between the two? Why are there two configurations? Like, What's this next thing everybody's talking about? Like, There's a lot of history there. Also some stuff, what you need to worry about, what you don't need to worry about. I wish I remember that Stephen Dahl maybe was the guy who wrote it. Maybe, but I'll do no, that. The Monad
1: up. Burrito Blog.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's. I think that's that's it. So those are kind of my two. The other one is like the look up the LSP, like figure out how to support Haskell inside whatever your favorite editor is Emacs. I mean, but aside from that, you know, figure out some good language support for it, and then just start typing it. And also, there's the gosh. And I'd actually have to go, I should go like dig up my actual list of Haskell resources and, and tell you what it was. But those were the, actually I started with the Haskell book is what I did. Cause actually that's what Brooklyn told me to do. Right.
4: Gotcha. So a- after embarking on this Haskell journey, what, you know, what kind of learnings did you bring back to your Elixir code and, and how did your, your style and the uh, you know, way of approaching problems in Elixir change, if at all?
2: Actually. So a couple of things, one, I stopped getting fancy and I simplified a lot of things Two. What it made me appreciate was how Elixir is the same, but how it's different. I'm actually much happier doing recursive and recursion now. Like, I'm much more likely to reach for a recursive style or a recursive style of a solution. And also, monadic composition and state passing composition. Like, there are a couple patterns that I steal all the time now, like pass state along with that before I didn't realize that's exactly what you were doing in Elixir, but now to me it's explicit as opposed to being implicit. Yeah, so mostly. I think Haskell is the definition of just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? You you can, by all means, there it won't stop you, but be careful. You might be just taking aim at your big toe with a very, very, very large shotgun, right? So yeah, so mostly, like I said, the I think it, what it made me understand is which abstractions I'm using and be much more. I guess for I'm much more explicit about the abstractions that I'm choosing at each level now. Thing, whereas before, I'm like, oh, yeah, we do this because that's what Elixir code is supposed to look like, versus now I'm thinking, oh, this is what it's supposed to do. still a terrible Haskell programmer, though. Like, terrible.
4: Yeah, it's a programming language course in in, uh, in graduate school. And we did Haskell, Lisp, and Prolog. And uh, at that point, I was like, I'm never doing functional programming ever again. I don't see the utility at all. And like five years later, I went all in on Elixir. So I put my foot in my mouth five years ago. but. Yeah, it was, it was definitely interesting. I'm, I'm sure if I picked it up again today, I'd be just as terrible at Haskell as I was uh, you know, 10 years ago.
2: So to be full credit to the Haskell community, they're doing a much better job about being more welcoming. Oh, also exorcism. Exorcism has a great Haskell like exercises that you can go look at. And they actually have people who give you feedback on your, your Haskell. And it's cool to see this other solutions from different styles from people who are kind of new to Haskell, like your solutions and people who have been working with Haskell for a little bit. And then some other person who's like, yes, I did this in exactly three characters, <laughs> right? Like there, there is, you can see, sort of see the expressiveness of the language and that's actually, I don't know. I'm kind of a language nerd. So I like, like, we were early on to Closure at Thunderbolt labs. We, um, we were early adopters of Closure. We went to the first conj. And I think Clojure had some similar problems with that. It's incredibly powerful but in the hands of people who know how to use it. And there's not a lot of stuff to get you from here's a lisp to here's being really good with a lisp. Speaking of random weird language things, uh, let over lambda. If you ever just want to see, I know a lot of people don't write lisp, but if you ever just want to see a book to see where a lisp can take you, there is this book called let over lambda. I think you can only get it as like a EPUB or like a, PDF download, maybe there's a print version too. I think actually, as a functional programmer, it's just great to read what other people who hit the advanced end of a language can do. And specifically, Lead Over Lambda is is working on, um, he does a lot of macros and list style macros. One of the things I think that's underappreciated, I would like to learn more about it, and I never really use it, is the macro facilities inside of Elixir, right? I'm always looking for something to really do with it, but macros are incredibly powerful. And Letover Lambda was one of those things where I, like, I saw it and I'm just like, I got about 50% of what you're writing here, but man, that looks just ridiculously overpowered. It's OP. Like, how do you manage to do this? It's cool stuff. Oh, also, I learned Racket last year too, which was kind of cool, like looking at schemes. But
4: yeah, That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm at my second take of Chris McCord's book, uh, Metaprogramming and Elixir. I'll figure it out one of these days and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be able to write uh, macros correctly.
2: Yeah, it's a different level of reasoning there, right?
4: String interpolation for code. So if you can go back in time and give yourself some, uh, you know, some advice as you embark on the selector journey, you know, what would what would some of those tidbits be? Uh, Aside from this isn't Ruby, don't treat it like it's Ruby.
2: That would be one of the first
4: ones. Actually, find people.
2: Right. It's really weird. One of the things I think about. One of the things I think worked for Ruby and specifically Rails, they're different things, but I mean is that they had a community of people who were always willing to help. I think the community aspect of a language is really underrated. So find other people who are in Elixir who are kind of in that same boat and collectively start learning with them. That would be one. Two, learn Elixir before learning other things first, right? Oh, I think somewhere on the Elixir FAQ or someplace, maybe on the Elixir Lang website, it says, don't ask, how do I... I, What was it said? Don't ask, how do you do X in Elixir? Ask, how would I solve why in Elixir, like the idea of don't just translate the idioms from whatever languages you already know into Elixir, actually go back and learn from first principles what's going on. That's actually one of the things I really like about the Dave Thomas book is that it kind of abandons some of the, oh, look, look, here's hello world. Look, here's a for loop. Like, if you think about it, I don't know about you, but for the past 20 years, whatever, like our programming books have pretty much been exactly the same, right? Because we all have some sort of C or style functional like programming background. So they all pretty much look the same. They teach you the same construct. So what you're really trying to do is you're trying to figure out like, oh, what's the equivalent of a for loop in Go? Got it. Like, what's the equivalent of a if then else in C Sharp? Got it, right? So I would say actually learn it from first principles. So strangely enough, you know, shameless plug, I did give a talk on how to learn Elixir at ElixirConf and CodeBeam. And the other one is, I think, take time because you're building up new cognitive structures. I think people, a lot of time, do not realize how much work it takes to get your brain to start thinking functionally, right? There is a lot there that you have to unlearn.
1: Syntax, concurrency, distribution, macros, uh, functional programming.
2: (laughs) So (laughs) that's a lot, right? It's interesting. I'm going to give another shameless plug for Bruce. I generally speaking, I recommend that they read the Elixir book, and then strangely, before they read the Phoenix book, I recommend that they read designing OTP systems in Elixir from Bruce's totally book.
0: Totally agree. Yeah,
2: Be- because it teaches you the part of the problem is if you're a functioning like no pun intended, a functioning sort of professional programmer, you normally have something you got to do for your day job. Like it's not most of us don't just have the luxury of of learning a language for no applicative, also no pun intended, reason. So you need to know how you build up an elixir system and the functional core stuff. What does it? Do fun things with what's the rest of the acronym? Will there's
0: Wilderbeast? Wildebeest?
2: No, no,
5: worker bees, worker bees. We gotta <laughs> yeah, come Oh, on.
0: did we change it? Yeah, yeah.
5: Do do fun things with Big
2: Loud.
1: Yeah, big loud worker bees. That's right. Yeah. I like, I owe you a book be- and a beer. <laughs>
2: thank <Steven. laughs> uh, Yeah, Steven, thank you. Cause I I, I personally I think the wilder has a nice lowing sound, you know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it does but O'Reilly had the cover no <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, there,
2: there is
0: a bee on the cover so yeah okay.
2: yeah oh interesting is that really what happened is like O'Reilly mm-hmm. had like a wildebeest on something and they're like, no you, you may not put wildebeests
1: yeah yeah and so James had just come back from an Africa trip right and so he he loved uh, wildebeest and and I mean I've done all this marketing. But now, I mean, it makes sense, right? Beehives, layers, different cells, um, OTP—just it really fits. It Makes sense,
2: yeah. It's true, and bees nice visual. Uh, beehives are built in hexagons, right? So they have hex already mm-hmm. built in. Mm-hmm.
1: Ooh, oh, well done there.
2: Yeah, right, well, just drop the yeah. mic.
1: We got to be done. Yeah.
2: That's <laughs> it. So yeah, so I recommend that they they read that book because it's important to understand how you build a layer of system together because it's very different than Elixir. The functional core aspect is what most people miss. In fact, we just had a team try to learn Elixir that had been Rubyist and JavaScript people, and that's exactly what they missed. And it was the first thing they missed. They didn't have a functional core, and it made everything else almost impossible.
1: It's funny. In San Francisco, Brooklyn came up to me, and I mean, she's one of the, the people that I, I practically idolized. I mean, the witchcraft library, the, the strong resonance with Haskell, with the, the things that she can make macros do. Um, she's just smarter than Oliver B, but she came up to me and said, Hey, about your talk. And I'm saying, Oh crap, here it comes. And it was basically an outline of the work of B book. She says, I agree with all of it. And by the way, here's where the this paper says the same thing, except between this layer and this layer, you have an interface. And so it was really, it was like a high moment in my career, you know, it's kind of said yeah, you get this. And I said, I didn't mean to get it that way, but I'll take it, right? Yeah. So actually, if I remember, Carly, Sophie, didn't she
2: say that you didn't, you had like a liberal arts background, right? Was that, was that? Yeah, liberal I uh,
0: liberal arts background, history degree, and then uh, ended up at the Flatiron School, which is, is, was a software engineering boot camp. And that kind of the rest was history. I just fell in love with it.
2: Yeah. So when you were thinking about learning things, what do you wish somebody had told you?
0: That's a good question. I mean, that's one of the things that I loved about learning Ruby is that it tells a story and you really have the emphasis on the problem that you're trying to solve and how to express it with code, as opposed to needing to understand kind of some of the low level principles. I feel like that came later for me. And then I think the thing that really hooked me and kind of got me, frankly, obsessed with programming was, and I really think this is a feature of of something that the Flatiron School really engenders in their teachers and offers to their students is just just an absolute love of what you're doing just an excitement a curiosity like this total space of support that's something that I very much felt from my teachers there and then learned I think in part how to give to my students subsequently because then I went on to teach there from Stephen I think Stephen just brings this like absolute joy to whatever he's doing and he is as excited to show you something that he showed you know, a thousand people for five years as he is to show you something that he just figured out for the first time ever. And it's really infectious. And I think that to me is really like the secret ingredient to learning a new language and learning a new skill. Oh, mm, joy. Stephen actually... is
1: a stone cold ninja. He has a teacher. I mean, Absolutely. so he started come, coming teaching to our Chattanooga elixir group. And, you know, just kind of, I, I just dropped him into our most advanced class and and disappeared on him really. And, um, and they came back raving on him saying, when are you coming back? You don't have to come back. You really don't have to come back. <laughs> Steven has this. That you know, is really, yeah, really cool. It's well, it's I, really I paid them all. Static. I paid them all to say that. So it's okay. You must hey,
2: ask. as i say, that's a great thing to do. It's like, especially nowadays with gift cards, it's a really easy way to get a great review, right. but actually that's really funny. I think it's interesting. One of the common threads I see about people is people. I think what brings us to different languages and different tools are the people, which yeah. is a really weird thing to say, for tech people, right? Like, but a lot of why we choose the tools we have is if you get a good person who introduces you to the right sort of like to the joy of better tools and better approaches and better thinking you have this great experience and that carries forward and there are, oh, I've you know I've, I've met my more than my fair share of like abused programmers right like hey what happened i got dumped into this project nobody told me what to do there was no ci cd nobody told me about testing like if you don't have somebody to tell you how fun and how joy and joyful programming can be. It can be a real, be a real slog. So kudos to you, Stephen, if you can actually like convey that sort of excitement to people, that's super important for the next generation Again. of
0: programmers. Yeah. Well, I think we're all very grateful to have benefited from that. Since we are coming to the end of our time, there's one last question that I really wanted to get to for Randall, since you are a bona fide Bon Vivant. I need like a Halloween themed cocktail that isn't like too much. I don't like things that are super sweet, I want it to be easy because I'm not great at this. Do you have anything for me?
2: Okay, off the top Following of my head. Following
0: our autumnal, yeah.
2: So an autumnal cocktail, I would go with a spiced cider with a rye whiskey on the side or rye bourbon whiskey kicker. So okay. one of the things you can do is you can actually take apple cider. You need the unfiltered type cider, not juice. So you okay. take apple cider and you can actually reduce it in a pan and it makes for a very strong apples, almost like an apple syrup. Interesting. And you can infuse that with things like cinnamon. So you could put like cardamom, cinnamon, any of those things in it, in a pan, reduce it more by half or a little more, and you end up with an apple syrup. And so from there, you can basically select your level of booziness, your level of appleness, and your level of, of cocktail. You can make it effervescent by either fixing it or topping it oh, off with champagne. I love
0: that. I'm definitely doing that.
2: So it works in all situations. Cocktail. Yeah. Champagne cocktails are underrated. We could cure. Yeah. I um,
0: totally agree. Also makes me feel like I'm in the 1920s. I'm not really sure why I have that association. Feel like
2: a, maybe a sliver glass. Yeah. Yeah. So that's because, in what I like about that is with one prep, you can make the base and then people can have either a non-alcoholic, if you have people who aren't drinking or a mm-hmm. completely boozy, wipe you out cocktail by just dumping a bunch of rye whiskey and putting a splash of, of yeah. apple over the top of it.
0: Also, I like a cocktail that you don't have to mix individually, even if you have like just a couple people around it's still sort of a pain so I love this thank you I cannot wait to try this out this is perfect
3: so so yeah one of my favorite communities in programming these days is the angular community every time I go to an angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the angular community I have a great time and a lot of them have wound up on adventures in angular so if you're doing front-end development you're looking for a way to keep current on the angular ecosystem and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com.
0: Great. And I think that'll bring us to our picks. We have a lot of great recommendations. We've been collecting some of the links and things that have been mentioned in this convo, but we will go around the room, so to speak. And if anyone has specific recommendations since Bruce had to drop off, I'll start with his. Uh, Grazio starts their nerves course on November 1st. Definitely don't miss it out and check out Grox.io, Groxio, and I will pass it over to Alex.
4: Ah, so my picks are two learning resources. They're both kind of open books. One is the Beam book, and there'll be a link in the show notes. And the other one is Erlang and Anger. I've definitely used Erlang and Anger several times right. uh, yeah. when there's been a memory leak in production and you're like, whoa, this is Elixir. Memory leaks are not not possible. Well, they are possible. And there's a couple scenarios into which they're possible. So that is a good reference to uh, to hit up when you don't know why memory is spiking and Grafana is going off the charts. So definitely check those out.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Alex. Uh, Stephen. Steven?
5: So mine is going to be for, I have ultra wide monitors here, but I actually mean super ultra wide monitors. So first off, this is a thing. Uh, You can get a monitor that's 49 inches and super ultra wide. Yeah. You you don't know you need this, but you need this in your life. You need to be surrounded by Zoom, like people on your left, people on your right. It really makes you feel like you're back in the office, but kind of surrounded in a weird way. So check that out.
0: Thank you for that. I can't wait to squint even harder at the teeny, teeny, tiny resolution of whatever is on your screen share. I don't have any picks this week, although I have a feeling I'll be recommending this cocktail as soon as I try it out. Ramble, like I said, I collected some of the links that you had mentioned, but if you have anything else you'd like to share, certainly doesn't have to be Elixir or even programming related.
2: So one is definitely Seema Deals, the Haskell link. What I Wish I Had Known, that was actually really good. I, I just like that as a comprehensive sort of resource. Uh, another one is Kemming Labs has this thing called Finda. I don't know if you guys have ever used Finda. It is literally a search everything. It's it's, it's like, it's one of the greatest things ever. It just pops up all of these, the, this, this huge overlay that you can search all the things. And I do mean all the things, as in you can like integrate it with your Vim, you can integrate it with your Emacs. I'm pretty sure it integrates with Vim. I know it works with VS Code but it'll search open tabs. So if you're like me and you're one of those people who never closes tabs, you can search all your tabs, you can search all your links um, and it's super fast. And it's a it's a great way to actually kind of be lazy about managing
0: windows until you should have This looks machine. really dangerous for me because I absolutely have a million tabs and can never find anything and I think it's just yes. going to reinforce that. <laughs> so, I'm still going to try this out.
2: So check it out. I actually, like I said, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that just because I started using it yesterday and I was just like, where have you been? So. Very
0: cool. Thank you.
2: Thank you guys. Actually, appreciate you guys giving me a chance to just prattle on for a while.
0: Yeah, this was great. We were thrilled to have you and hopefully we'll get to talk again soon.
3: All right. Sounds great. Cheers. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.